Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, the final four is set. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 104 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, March 28th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately following the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Duke Blue Devils were bounced from the NCAA tournament in the Elite Eight by losing an overtime thriller to Kansas. And while the loss certainly stings as a Duke fan, there was an anecdote I came across from one of its players far too late but better late than never. Not only was Marvin Bagley III one of the best, if not the best, college players this past season, he can spit it too. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Marvin Bagley III ended the year as one of the greatest freshmen in Duke history, averaging 21 and 11 and making life for opposing defenses a living hell. He's already been named ACC Player of the Year and an AP All-American, and will most likely continue to garner awards before assuredly announcing for the NBA Draft. But two weeks before Bagley became a phenom in blue and white, he released a single, Breathe, a take on the 2004 song of the same name, but with his own words. Bagley, or MB35 as he calls himself in the booth, penned the song as a sophomore in high school, the year he moved from Arizona to California and had to sit out the basketball season. The lyrics talk of proving his doubters wrong and his love for basketball. And frankly, the song is fire. (laughs) 
Certainly no airball from Marvin Bagley III. Something that can't be said for some other former or current NBA players that have tried their luck behind the microphone. While Bagley will have more than enough to prove in the NBA, he already has some stiff competition to overcome in the booth. After all, who can forget the platinum album, Shaq Diesel? I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to work on our rhymes. When we come back, we'll recap all things NCAA tournament and preview the final four. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know who will win the NCAA tournament and why. A quick housekeeping note, as long-time listeners to the show might have noticed in the open, The Bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, with new episodes airing every Wednesday, featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest to headline the show. We're also in the process of working on a second show that will air on Mondays and will be more sports talk specific, and I'll have more information about that right now. This week's guest is Al Renato, who some of you sports radio listeners in the Northeast might know better as Al in White Plains. Al is an attorney by day and an avid sports fan by night and someone I've always enjoyed hearing from on sports talk radio shows from close to two decades, calling into Mike and the Mad Dog to now throughout the lineup on Sirius XM's Mad Dog Sports Radio. 
he's sharp, he's opinionated, he's knowledgeable, and someone who can talk about sports for hours on end without missing a beat. Because The Bridge is now on five days a week on Sports Radio America and was only live for one of them, I thought it might be worthwhile to team up with Al for a sports talk show to fill that Monday night void, breaking down the main storylines from the past week and previewing what's to come the week of. So you can view this show as a test show of sorts, with Al kind enough to give up some time as a co-host for this week's The Bridge to chat about the NCAA tournament. We'll discuss Virginia losing as as the first one seed to a 16 seed, other disappointing exits from teams like UNC and Kentucky, how far is too far for Cinderella's, and which team of the Final Four will win the tournament. You can't follow Al on Twitter because he doesn't have one, so comment on the website somewhere or on my Twitter at London Bridge if need be. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Al Renato. You might know him as Alan White Plains. If you are an avid sports radio fan, he is an avid sports fan himself and is kind enough to join the show and chat some NCAA tournament. Al, thanks for coming back on the show. How are you? Johnny, always my pleasure. Great to speak with you. A tremendous time of year. And, uh, you know, this to me has turned out to be, as we head to the Final Four, uh, a wonderful tournament so far. It has evened itself out in a sense to be wonderful, I guess. And a lot of people have different viewpoints on what they want their tournament to be, whether that's early upsets and the powerhouses, the blue bloods, the chalk teams make it to the end, or they're okay sometimes with the Cinderella-esque story runs, as we're seeing now with Sister Jean and Loyola Chicago. But before we get into the specifics of the tournament, overall, what have your feelings been of it? We had some major upsets happen early. Now we do have a couple well-known teams in the Final Four, along with that Cinderella. How do you feel about what this Final Four will be this coming weekend? I, I'm excited because you know I've been watching this for a very, very long time, back to the days when uh, Cream Milk Girls Bottle was Lou Elsender. Uh, and you know, the, the common discussion over the past week and a half has been, you alluded to earlier, give me my upsets, give me my Cinderella's, give them to me early. Obviously, we had our first 16 over a one, uh, which is biggest surprise as it was, if you were ever going to pick a one to lose, it would probably be Virginia because of the style or lack of style that they play with offensively. And then after that, you know, the, the common denominator amongst a lot of fans uh, has been get that over and done with and get me to the big-time programs once we clear the Sweet 16 because nobody wants a Final Four or a Final uh, where all the TVs aren't going to be tuned in to see the big programs. Well, you, know, you got, in my mind, about as sweet a setup as you could possibly have. Because what looked like early on was going to be a tournament dominated by upsets. My alma mater, uh, the Fighting Orange of Syracuse, knocking off Tom Izzo's Michigan State Club, uh, really has kind of returned to normalcy with the, expect, with the exception of the one upside-down regional which Loyola has come out of. You know, early on, you know, Virginia, tough road to home, like Kentucky and Arizona there. Well, all of a sudden, they're all gone. And Loyola survives. And they're a great story with, of course, Sister Jean. But everything else is pretty much turned out the way you would like, the way you would hope. Here you got Michigan playing great, 
Big Ten champ on fire. Haven't lost since January. Uh, granted, to get there, they didn't have to beat who you thought they were going to have to get there. But you know, the one over there, Xavier, maybe an overseed, not that strong a one. So I'm really surprised Michigan is there. I'm not. Believe it or not, I picked them. Um, and on the other side, you know, probably the should have been number one overall in the tournament, Villanova. Because let's face it, who was the team that played the best, the longest, had the most versatile game, and was probably the best team in the country for the longest period of time? Probably Villanova, which I think should have been the overall one. Uh, and that's not saying it after the fact. I said that at the time. And there they are with pretty much a, a relatively smooth trip uh, to get to the Final Four. And Kansas, who beat Duke in literally an epic regional final, one of the best college games considering the spot that it was in uh, and the buildup for it and the caliber of play and the quality of the game that went back and forth. Building was full. Tremendous, tremendous game from beginning to end. And so I am I'm, I'm love where we are. I think we're set up for two terrific games. And the other complaint now is what, you know, Villanova should be the final game. You know, Villanova and uh, Kansas on that side of the bracket should be the final game. Well, that's the way it goes. You know, should we recede? No, we shouldn't recede. Just leave it where it is. Let it be. Let the two games play out and see if we have Michigan against a one or a two, or we've got Cinderella against the one or the two. Either way, it's fine by me, and I think America's going to love it. You mentioned Virginia, and it's interesting and maybe a little humorous as a Duke fan. There was a part of me that always thought that Duke would end up being that one seed that would lose to a 16, just having seen them lose to the likes of Lehigh or Mercer over the years. It wouldn't surprise me if a team comprised mostly of freshmen with little to no experience in a game of that magnitude would just get a hot 16 seed and not be able to match up with them and it's interesting now in the tournament that these 16 seeds aren't say the little sisters of the poor that I might might have been early on when this first got going there's a lot of teams now that aren't that bad if they can play a great game or their best game on x day just because they usually have a team of juniors and seniors who have done this before and they know each other well all you need is one and we finally got that with UMBC taking down Virginia handily might I add a, a 20 point victory not even a buzzer beater or one that was close really in the second half this was a beatdown by a 16 seed over a one something we have never seen in our lifetimes and I don't know if it took away from the victory just because of how convincing it was I don't know if it should be pegged as one of the biggest upsets in sports history but overall what were your thoughts on Virginia falling as the first team to a 16 seed whether that was one of the biggest upsets in sports or if in a sense as you mentioned it wasn't something too unpredictable well anything that's never happened before is deemed as a huge upset right so we start there anytime it's first you know you you just freeze in time and say wait a second how did this happen this has got to be one of the biggest upsets we've ever seen in our lives so because it's a 16 and a one and it's never happened before you deem it a huge upset. But we have been close. You know, Albany taking North Carolina to a, a very, very late 
tight game uh, many moons ago. And there was a, probably a bigger disparity between Albany, no disrespect to them, and North Carolina than there was between Virginia and uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, excuse me, Maryland, Baltimore County. The difference being, again, is that, as you mentioned, you would expect it to be a scenario where the underdog has the lead, and then as it gets later on, they start to tighten up, the favorite gets closer, and ultimately the favorite overcomes, they escape, and that's the game they point to to say, boy, to win this thing, you got to get somewhere. You have to steal one. And that's what you expect to happen. But what happens it, after a first half that was ugly at 21 all, they come out and they punch him in the face with a big run, and Virginia, the one seed, never, ever recovers. Partly because the one thing Virginia has a difficult time doing is coming from behind because they are not a real versatile offensive team. They don't have a score in the post. They rely on a backcourt that is not that athletic in terms of scoring on their own. Uh, Half-court sets, screens for threes, uh, not a real force in terms of getting up and down and scoring in bunches. And they ran into a team that when they couldn't do that, nor could their pack line stop the other team from scoring, they were in the deep end of the pool and basically cramped up and had nowhere to go but down. And they just kept sinking and sinking, and the more they got behind, you could see the more they pressed, and it just got uglier and uglier. I don't think the talent disparity is that great between this one and this 16. The seeding was, as you alluded to, it's not only the 16 over the one, it's the breadth of the loss. Just like, you know, did we think in our wildest dreams Buffalo could step up and beat Arizona? Maybe one out of 10, but pummel them again after a first half tight game, pummel them in a submission, in the, embarrass them, blow them off the court. So you, you, you see that five on five across America, when there are so many wonderful players with all of these high school and AAU programs, the disparity between the great teams and the good teams and the pretty good teams is not nearly where it used to be. And it showed up with the first 16 one-ups that we've ever seen. If we take a quick look at the Final Four, just at three of the teams that everyone knows, those three teams also have prominent coaches that have been there and done that in a sense that seemingly have success or are able to find it each and every year. Whether or not they can make it to the Final Four, they've won national championships. They've done well in the past. They're well-known names, and some of them may make the Hall of Fame. Tony Bennett, unfortunately, is now that coach that had a team lose to a 16 as a one seed. We know what he means to Virginia. We know what he means to the state as a whole. We know how he is as a person and what he's able to bring out of the men that are on his team. He's a great guy. He has great values, and the list goes on and on. However, this might be something that can hang over him now, having this loss, not having won a national championship do you think this might taint his legacy? Maybe not at Virginia, but just as a coach overall, is this something that he can come back from? 
Well, first of all, let's remember who Tony Bennett is. He's a coach's son. Dick Bennett was a wonderful coach. His obviously son is his protege. Uh, you learn very on, early on as a coach and the coach's son that there are ups and downs to that profession. You never get too high, never get too low. Uh, it's a roller coaster. Uh, let me give you an example from yours truly. Obviously, I'm a Syracuse alum, class of eight. My first year was Coach Bayheim's first year. Had a lot of success, got to a Final Four in 87, lost a heartbreaker, key smart jumper from the corner. But Bayheim, until that point in time, was very much a beleaguered coach. Great deal of criticism, did less with more, great talent. Billy Owens, Derek Coleman, Sherman Douglas, Ronnie Cyrus, Stevie Thompson, Pearl Washington, just to name a few. Uh, and then, lo and behold, even after he gets to a final, what happens? He becomes the first coach to lose to a 15 as a two. In Billy Owens last year, in 1991, they lose to Dick Terrence Richmond team, which was not a 15 by any means. They were a solid team. And they beat Syracuse, and they, they didn't pound them. They beat them in a, in, a, in a tight game. And you wonder at that point in time, after everything he's been through, and uh, being somewhat criticized over the years, less since the final four, the, the trip to the finals, but now again, uh, coming up short since and being the first two to lose to a 15 with that hangover Jim Beheim. Well, it did for a little bit. Then he takes a magic carpet ride in 1996 with John Wallace's team to the finals and loses to a tremendous Kentucky team. And he wins in 2003 and he's made a couple more trips since. I think Tony Bennett will be fine. Um, and I think eventually he'll get to a Final Four with Virginia because he's a very good coach in a very good conference. I think Tony Bennett may have to adjust some things in terms of the way he coaches offensively or the style with which his team plays offensively because I think it's become a very difficult game to go on a long enough winning streak if you're a team that struggles to score. And sometimes, as I said before, Virginia, because of their talent or, I hate to use the term lack thereof, but sometimes their lack of athleticism uh, and their ability to score comes up short in big spots. You know, it's tough to win those four in a row against the best competition in the country to just get to the Final Four. And that's where he's at right now. A couple of years ago, he was close. They got to the garden, and what happens? They pulled a rock. They pulled a rock. They couldn't put the ball in the basket, and that was a team that had more talent than the team that just lost. So that's really what I think Tony Bennett has got to overcome. He's got to overcome what so far has been his team's inabilities on the offensive end to come through in big spots in this tournament uh, to get to that next level, which for him is to finally get to a Final Four. You've been mentioning the Syracuse Orange, and it seems like this is yet another year where they enter the NCAA tournament and Jim Beheim is able to do 
more with less, at least by the perception of the media in that he didn't necessarily have a huge superstar on this team. Syracuse as a team was argued not even to make the NCAA tournament. They get in the play-in game. They keep the tradition alive of a play-in team being able to make at least a small run by winning the first game and then winning another one. But they do even better than that and get into a matchup with Duke and keep the game close and in hand and one that they could have actually won as well to advance to the Elite Eight if the ball bounced is a certain way overall for the Syracuse team as a fan of theirs and being able to watch them and what they were able to accomplish we often say that a year isn't successful without a championship or it isn't successful without a final four is that something that we can put aside a little bit for this year's Syracuse team based on what they were able to do in the run they made in the tournament itself yeah I, I think there's no doubt about it for a lot of reasons you know recovering from uh, the scholarship reductions, which they have done now, uh, they had a starting forward transfer after his freshman year. They lost the backup point guard very early to a, a knee injury. So they were really down to seven scholarship players, uh, three of which were hurt for a good chunk of the season. The two big men uh, were struggling with knee injuries. Matt Moyer, who just announced he's transferring, was struggling with a, an ankle injury. So you really had three 40-minute men uh, in Frank Howard, Brissett, and uh, the battler, uh, Tyus Battle, um, who I believe averaged more minutes per game than there are minutes per game uh, in ACC play this year because they had a double overtime game against Florida State. I believe he actually averaged more than 40 minutes a game in ACC league play. Uh, Player of the year a couple years ago at St. Joe's, in uh, in Jersey, wonderful player. Don't know if he's going to come back or not. I'm sure he's going to test the waters at the pre-draft camps and see what happens. If he comes back next year, they have a chance to be very good, uh, very very good. And I think he'll be very good if he doesn't come back because they've got a good incoming class. But you know, long answer to your question: successful season because of what they had to go through with a very short-handed squad, a uh, lot very inexperienced. Um, Battle and Howard, really the only two guys that had any significant playing time in their college careers. Other guys, all newcomers. Um, very offensively challenged, uh, no depth, and you know, up and down all year long, consistent defensively, very inconsistent offensively, in a very tough conference. Found a way to sneak into the tournament, the last team selected. And once they got in, they played a little bit better offensively. They played great defensively, and as you know, um, that zone is very difficult, even when you're used to it, which Duke showed, uh, to get a handle on. Uh, it's very long, and when they rebound out of it well, they're very, very difficult to score against. And if you noticed, uh, in the great game in the Elite Eight, what did Bill Self do? He didn't play the zone, but he double-teams their best player down low, uh, and he basically dared... Gary Trent Jr. and Grayson Allen to make threes, which they didn't do against Syracuse, which resulted in it being a very close game. And they couldn't do it against Kansas. The the difference was uh, they double-teamed the big kid down low and kept the ball away from him. He didn't do a very good job presenting himself to the ball. And Grayson Allen didn't do a very good job getting him the ball in entry passes, took bad angles, etc. So I I think that Bill Self 
watched that game, took a good look at the film of that game, and saw, I'm going to dare these two guys to make threes. They didn't do it against Syracuse. The Syracuse damn near beat them. So if we can rebound the missed three ball, which they did and beat them off the glass, we can certainly score against them. And you saw what they did to that zone. They carved that zone up. Syracuse did a good job against it, but Syracuse does not have the offensive weapons that Kansas does. And Kansas showed that zone had more holes than a golf course. They ripped that thing to shreds and got any shot they wanted whenever they wanted. And that's really what was Duke's undoing. They could not, not stop Kansas from scoring. So not only was it a successful season for Syracuse in terms of what they accomplished, I believe what they accomplished in their last game of the season helped Kansas accomplish what they accomplished to get to the Final Four. I would agree with that. And after watching the game, then having to talk about it at work for ACC today, and then hearing you talk about it now, still a very frustrating loss that will take a couple of weeks to get over, as what seems to happen every year in the NCAA tournament if your favorite team ends up coming short, especially in a close game in the end. What's interesting to me is that we don't have some names in the Final Four that people might have thought would have gotten there. We've already hit on two with Arizona and Virginia. A big one for me was North Carolina, and I don't know if that was just from watching them play a little bit more as a fan of Duke and of the ACC and having that under a microscope a little bit, but it seemed like they had the senior leadership, those veteran guys that would be able to at least get them back for a chance to play into the championship, but they end up coming up short to Texas A&M in just the second round and again another game that ended up being a blowout they really couldn't even keep it close allowing Michigan in a sense not a cakewalk to the final four but making it a little bit easier for them to get there is there a team or teams that stands out to you that you might be a little bit surprised didn't end up getting into the final four this season I I would have to say because uh, I did pick them to come out of the regional because they were playing really well and then the way it opened up for Kentucky, uh, I thought for sure that they were going to come out of uh, that region. And they had it all right there for them. Right. And as poorly as they played against Kansas State, uh, and I thought as poorly as Coach Cal coached, and you know, we, we'd go up and down with him, you know, the one and done, and uh, you know, Kenny coach, Kenny coach as he rolled the ball out there. You know, I actually thought he did a very good job with this team because they were really kind of a strange mix. They didn't have a true point guard, point guards on the big side. Um, You know, not a lot of experience, not a lot of experience playing together, uh, really trying to find their way. And then, you know, the last quarter of the season, they came alive. They played great against the UB team that destroyed Arizona. Um, And for some reason, the game was, even when the game was there to be had against Kansas State, they never really got clear. They never really flowed offensively. Uh, just when you thought they would take the game over, uh, K-State gets three for a three and knocks down a big three. Or, continue, and, and the big kid killed them. I mean, you know, eight for 20 from the foul line from your center basically cost you a close game. The way the game was officiated did not help Kentucky. Not that it was officiated in a one-sided fashion against them, but if we have Kentucky and Kansas State go out there, Kentucky wants to go up and down. 
and let their athleticism take over. And Kansas State has athletes, absolutely, but Kentucky's got more of them, as they always do. They want that game to go and be up and down, free-flowing. If there's some contact, play through it. Not a lot of nickel-dime stuff, and that game was not poorly officiated. It was over-officiated. As I said, Washington's taking 20 free throws. Need I say more? Kentucky would have been much more well-suited if that game was more of an open-court, uh, let-them-play kind of game. And even though their guy got to take 20 free throws, I think that actually worked to their disadvantage. He winds up making eight of them. You know, he has a better, just a re- decent night at the line. And they win that game. And then, you know, they're, they're playing uh, you know, everybody's Cinderella to go to the Final Four. And um, I, that was really the team that I was most surprised because I thought they had been playing the best. North Carolina, I watched a lot, you know, being an ACC guy. And May had, got, had had a terrific first half of the year. The second half of the year, he really struggled. In every aspect of the game, his shooting went way downhill from everywhere. The mid-range jumper, the three-pointer, which he had shot a very high percentage of, uh, was way down. And they needed his scoring, and they just weren't getting it uh, you know, in the second half of the year. And in the postseason, in the ACC tournament, he struggled. Um, and the same thing with their senior guard, uh, who shooting went way downhill in the ACC tournament. And they faced a talented A&M team that took them out to the woodshed, plain and simple. And, again, we're used to seeing these teams make their run back. You know, when Roy Williams takes his jacket off and throws it down, oh, here comes the 12-0 North Carolina run. It never came. It never came. And they lost a couple guys from last year, one to the NBA, who were really important players for them. And you just don't always have the ability to replace players of their caliber. And it showed they, in the big scheme of things, were not nearly as good a team as they were last year. And I think sometimes we just fall in the trap of Carolina Blue, defending champs, title game two years in a row, et cetera, et cetera. This team just wasn't that talented. It's funny that you mention Kentucky not getting there because one of the CBS bigwigs, I forget his name, of course, at this moment, but he had mentioned in an interview that he wished Kentucky did win because it would have helped the ratings for CBS in the Final Four. Sean McManus. Sean McManus. Right, Sean McManus. He wanted Sean McManus, who, is, I believe, who I believe is Jim McKay's son. Could be. But I can see why he would be a little disappointed just because, again, you'd have the Blue Bloods, you'd have the powerhouses, you would have the the good versus evil. If Kentucky ended up going up against Sister Jean, you could have run that storyline. We missed out exactly. a little bit on how, how great How great would a sit-down have been with Coach right. Kell and Sister Jean? You could, could have had him on 60, on 60 Minutes. Right. Instead of watching Stormy <laughs> Daniels, we could have got a little bit more entertainment potentially. Touche. So the question is, are you going to miss Grayson Allen now that he finally has to leave Duke? Are his seven years of eligibility up? It seems like he has been there a long time, much uh, to the chagrin of probably a lot of people. There, he, there, I think he had that plumly longevity for them. There, there are certain guys, and Grayson Allen is one of them, and, and two others that, that uh, come to mind for me. Archie Diacono at Villanova, and they had another point guard a few years prior to playing him at Scotty Reynolds. They both seem like they, they, those three guys seem like they were at their, because they're playing since the freshman. 
kill and you're a four-year starter, it's like you're there for 25 years. And uh, you know, Grayson Allen won his, his championship. So, uh, you know, and he played a huge role in winning it. And, you know, he, he had uh, a couple rotten games against Syracuse and against Duke in terms or against uh, Kansas in terms of shooting the ball. And, you know, is America glad to see him go? Uh, probably. I, I guess the bigger question for America is not are you happy to see Duke lose? It's when are you happiest to see Duke lose? Right. You know, would you rather Duke lost when they lost, or would you rather see Duke go to the finals and, and lose to, to Loyola you know, in a huge upset? What, if you're going to get to choose your ultimate elixir, because you know, the further along they go, the further the chance they're going to win. So you know, yours truly, being a Bill Self fan, who I think is incredibly underrated uh, and gets a great deal of criticism that I don't think he deserves, uh, I- I'm happy they lost when they lost uh, because I-, I like this Kansas team a lot, the way they play, and, and I like Bill Self, and I think he gets very, very little credit, so I'm happy to see him get uh, get some kudos for what I thought was an incredibly well-coached game and probably the best job uh, I think he's done it in, in his career at Kansas, getting this team where he's got them. Um, and the other thing we talked about earlier, you know, in terms of the caliber of the upset, you know, w- would that have, bigger, have been a bigger upset to America? And you can tell me. If that was 16-seeded Baltimore against one-seeded Duke, is it a bigger upset? I would think so. Right? And I think right? I think the – viewing public enjoy those a lot more after as we mentioned previously the lehigh loss the mercer loss those first round you're a two seed or you're a three seed you're expected to roll because you're duke losses the public loves those too yeah, yeah to, to me being a basketball fanatic a college basketball fanatic for you know 50 years duke losing in the first round to a 15 you know, like a Lehigh, it's a bigger upset to me than Virginia losing to, to a 60. It right. just is. Because I, I never expect a prepared two-seed, even if, if they're an overseed Duke team, to lose to a team like Lehigh in the tournament. You know, in the regular season, bad night, they're juiced, who knows? But not in the tournament. And, you know, a Tony Bennett team, again, I don't want to sound like we're, I'm, I'm being harsh but because of the style that his teams play, I can see them getting upset on any given night by a pretty good team. We have an incredible matchup waiting. Villanova, Kansas, two number one seeds in the Final Four. We have Michigan back in the Final Four, I believe, for the third time in the past six years. They often fly under the radar with this, but they're able to put together very good teams year after year, it seems, and end up and, making and, runs. You know, that's... I'm glad you brought that up because nobody brings that up. They do, and and that's exactly what they do. How do they fly? Michigan State and Tom Izzo get so much publicity, and I still haven't figured out why. He's won one national title, and he went through that nice run of of going to some Final Fours. John Beeline now is in his third Final Four in six years. Why are they under the radar? They're Michigan, for Christmas' sakes. They're huge. They have a they they have a bigger national following than Michigan State for sure. It doesn't make any sense, and especially recently, 
couple years ago when they had the Fab Five ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, even if there was a younger generation that didn't know of that and didn't know of their early success in the 90s, that should have been a wake-up call in a sense, but they shouldn't have needed one because, as you mentioned and as we've said, they are a team that ends up getting on the national radar year after year, but for whatever reason, don't get to carry that torch up higher than some other teams that, hey, we do this. This is something that shouldn't be a surprise, not so much as a surprise as the opponent that they'll end up facing in Loyola Chicago, who would be the misfit if you were to put those four teams into a hat. And humorously enough, had their easiest game, at least score-wise, in their last game, in the Elite Eight, having to win on buzzer beaters, two-point win over Miami, having to win by one point over Tennessee. They, they haven't had the easiest of rides, and the margin of victory, I believe, was three heading into that last game. And it, it has been incredible to see that Cinderella story that we all love. Having them win two games by one and another by two is just something that you don't usually see, at least not from a team that you haven't heard of to do so. And what I found interesting of their run is that so much has been put on Sister Jean and what she's meant to the team and how she did in her bracket. And she's always there now for an interview and her likeness is going to be made and has been made into bobbleheads and socks and anything you can imagine. But what's interesting of that is we haven't really learned much about the actual players or even the coach of the team itself. They're in a sense flying under the radar and being able to use sister Jean as a way to almost go out into these games with little to no pressure because still nobody knows who they are. They only know sister Jean. They don't know their best player. They don't know their second best player. They don't know the coach. They just know that sister Jean is leading the charge with this team and they're able to go out and, and seemingly play without a huge chip on their shoulder with that underdog mentality of leaving it all on the floor. And I think in a sense that's helped them now, obviously going into the final four, I'm sure we'll learn more about the players and the coach and they'll be doing feature stories and certain things along those lines. But as of now, I couldn't name you the starting five. I'd be hard to name you three starters on that team. How much do you think that's helped them not having that huge spotlight on them and just being able to go out and play as this unit and, and have some fun in the process? She has been a great deflector and protector. And I, I do think it's helped them in that it has really allowed them to focus on the matter at hand and has eliminated or at least minimized uh, what would be a great deal of distractions. Uh, they are the team that played its very best game in its last game of the four teams. They played three incredibly competitive, knockdown, dragout battles, and in their fourth game, they played a tremendous game and scored a knockout early and never, ever, ever let the opponent get up. And they're to be commended for that because on the grandest stage of the Elite Eight, they played their absolute best game of the game. Now, their opponent, on the other hand, who we just raved about, uh, with John Beeline is now has got to be considered a great coach. He's a great coach. There's no doubt about it. They are here, and they've only played one good game. First game, they struggled. They got through it. Second game, Houston outplayed them from pillar to post. 
Uh, Houston misses two free throws to put the game away. The kid hits, I'm not going to call it a prayer, but the kid hits a long to one he hit in high school a year earlier at the gun, and Houston is stunned. Michigan plays on. All right. Uh, they play their one great game against A&M, where they shoot the lights out and score 99 points. And then they have an incredibly ugly win against a Florida State team, which kind of makes you play that way because they're strong defensively. They like to go up and down, and they're long. They're difficult to score against. They didn't shoot well from the foul line. Struggled. Got the win. It wasn't pretty. Um, so you have a team coming off another ugly win and really only one good game in four against a team coming off its best game, but it's also played four really good games. Uh, so I think it's going to be a very interesting match. I, I think Michigan is going to be too much for them, size-wise with Wagner and uh, athletically. Uh, I just think there's going to be too much in the half-court defense for Loyola to deal with, even though they have five guys who can all handle and all shoot and all score, I think they're going to have trouble getting to the basket against the Michigan defense, which is going to force them to make a lot of defended jump shots. And that's hard for anybody to do at any level. Um, So I like Michigan in that game. And obviously the final question talking sports would have to be who you got to win it all since that will be decided by next week. I, I, I like Kansas. I, I like the way they're playing. I think they have what it takes to beat Villanova. Uh, Villanova got away and is rare with a very poor shooting game against Texas Tech. Um, however, Texas Tech can't put the ball in the water you know, from the beach. So they really didn't have to worry too much about Texas Tech beating them from three uh, or outscoring them. And when Villanova misses, they have one of the highest percentages in the country of rebounding their misses. If Kansas can do to Villanova what they did to Duke, which is control the glass off the Villanova misses, I think it has the makings of another tremendous game. I think Kansas has the advantage inside. And I think they have the ability with their guards and the size of their guards to do a good job on Villanova defensively. I mean, you can't just stop Brunson, but you must control him from dominating the game from a ball handling perspective. Because what he can do is literally take over the pace and control the entire game as a scorer or a distributor. He will shoot when he has to. You have to make him shoot when he doesn't want to. And if they're able to do that uh, and continue to shoot the ball the way they've shot it, because they've shot the ball incredibly well. Uh, you saw what Newman did. Wonderful game from everywhere on the court, including 13 in the overtime. Uh, the big guy uh, has to stay out of foul trouble. And they got some help from their bench. Uh, the Graham-Brunson matchup, to me, is the key to the game. If Graham can control him defensively, I think Kansas wins, and I think they win the national title. If Villanova wins, I think they win the national title. Yeah, it's hard to think that whatever team wins that game will have 
incredible trouble against whoever comes out of the Michigan Loyola Chicago game. And it's not something that you can assume, but just based on what we've seen from the two teams in Kansas and Villanova, you would think they would be able to handle whoever ends up being the winner in the national You know, title you know, John, you know. I'm gonna disagree with you there and I'll tell you why. Because Villanova and Kansas, both of them, do like to play a free flowing up and down game. Right. And that's fine with Michigan. Michigan has run into teams that, you know, kind of clutch and grab and bump you around and are incredibly long and athletic. And Villanova is not that long. They're good defensively, but they like to go also. And, you know, Michigan loves to be. Look, Michigan beat Florida State with their defense. They didn't win with their offense. And this is the thing about this B line team. It's probably his best defensive team. They won it with their defense at the rim. I understand it's Florida State they were playing against. But I, I think Michigan State can play with both Kansas and Villanova. I think Kansas or Villanova will beat them, but not in any dominant fashion. If Michigan gets there, they will compete against whoever comes out of that other game. And I think that would definitely make for a well-rated game and one that we can enjoy if it were Michigan. Not to say that Loyola Chicago won't pull as much clout but God forbid they end up losing by 20 points. Everyone will then again say, well, this is what happens when you get a Cinderella this deep into the tournament. They can't hang with the teams that are at a higher level or are at a power five conference. So in a sense for the doubters, it is Michigan's job to show them that and win that game and get to the national championship and make for some excitement on April 2nd, which I am sure we will be in for as tends to be the case year after year. On that note, a lot of people said that about Duke Butler and how that game turned out to be. That's true. And it almost went in. I'm glad it didn't as a Duke fan, but it almost <laughs> went in. What a game that was. Let's hope that these last two games are as good as the tournament has been to get us to these last two games. Agreed. Al, your insight is always well appreciated, and I'm looking forward to doing this with you on a more frequent basis to continue it along. Can't wait, John. Have a great night. Thanks again to Al for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another special edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts. For the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and on the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will offer up his favorite movies of 2017. You can find Joe on Twitter at Duke Mish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of... Five minutes in the film room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Believe it or not, we're coming up pretty fast on the summer movie season. With the Oscars in our rearview mirror, it's time to put a cap on 2017. I've told you the worst of 2017, and I've given you my take on what the Academy Awards deemed the best of the year. Now it's time for me to play favorites. Let me be clear. 
these movies will be my favorites of the year, based on quality, entertainment, and rewatchability. They are not necessarily the best. Here are my top 10 favorite films of 2017. Let's go to the tape. Number 10, Wonder Woman. Arguably the most impactful movie of 2017, Wonder Woman sits at the bottom of my list because I disagree with the direction the story takes in the final act. But it has one of my favorite scenes in a movie last year with the No Man's Land set piece. Stellar performances from Gal Gadot and Chris Pine and the director and Patty Jenkins who knew what she was doing. This made for one of the most influential films of last year, not to mention the best DC Extended Universe film. Number 9. Get Out Speaking of influential films, Get Out is a social commentary that really resonated with audiences. This movie is also just flat-out good. Jordan Peele's Oscar-winning writing and Oscar-nominated direction gives the film rewatchability as you can pick up on something new every time you catch it on HBO or pop it in the Blu-ray player. That really helped it sneak into my top ten because the first time I saw Get Out, I never would have thought it'd make the list. Also, Rod makes the movie. Number 8. John Wick Chapter 2 Brought on by the success and acclaim of its predecessor, John Wick Chapter 2 captures most of the magic of the first film. It expands more on a world we're interested in exploring, and Keanu Reeves once again embraces the physicality of the role. He makes life easy on the director by doing his own stunts and learning the fight choreography. He's helping move action movies toward the tracking shots and away from the shaky cam. We're already seeing its effect with Atomic Blonde's release and the hard work and dedication Charlize Theron put into that. This is a win for me and a win for cinema. Number 7. Logan. This is one of the best movies of 2017 and the best film in the X-Men franchise. It's a little low on my top 10 because of the rewatchability factor. As good as it is, Logan is a tough movie to sit through because it's kind of a bummer. I have to be in the mood to watch it. I can't just pop it in for enjoyment. That being said, it's a powerful story with award-worthy performances from Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart, a breakout performance from Daphne Keene, and an emotionally powerful ending to Jackman's 17-year career as Wolverine. Number 6, The Big Sick. There's nothing like a great romantic comedy, and I mean that, because there aren't many phenomenal films in the genre. The Big Sick joined that elite club in 2017. Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon wrote an Oscar-nominated script based on their lives to create some realistic and hard-hitting scenes, while making the audience double over in laughter. It's a perfect blend, making The Big Sick one of the best films of last year, and the best romantic comedy since 2012's Silver Linings Playbook. Number 5. Thor Ragnarok This is one of those films where the entertainment value overshadows any flaws the movie might have, and Thor Ragnarok doesn't have many problems. I just know that four of the five films behind it on my list are better movies than the third installment of the Thor franchise. But as far as entertainment value, I struggle to find anything that beats Thor Ragnarok. This movie is a blast from start to finish. It has you laughing throughout, Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston are electric every time they're on screen, and Taika Waititi's fresh vision somehow breathes more life into the juggernaut Marvel Cinematic Universe. Number 4. Baby Driver Edgar Wright continues to shine with his latest film, Baby Driver. The film and sound editing is the most memorable part of the movie. The way the music is interweaved with the plot makes Baby Driver one of the most clever and memorable films of the year. 
something we've come to expect from the masterful right. The tracking shots, fast-paced action, and top-notch acting from Ansel Elgort, John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, and Lily James put Baby Driver at the four spot. Number three, I, Tanya. From the start, I really liked all the people involved with the film, but I didn't realize it would ever be this good. The approach to I, Tanya was perfect. You can't make this movie any other way. If you make a straight-up biopic, it would have been a slow, depressing film. Interweaving the interviews from the characters involved, telling the stories based off those interviews, and breaking the fourth wall, it's exactly the energy I, Tanya needed. And who better to bring these real-life figures to life than the Oscar-nominated Margot Robbie and the Oscar-winning Allison Janney? And let's not forget about Sebastian Stan. Also, the cinematography is award-worthy as the skating scenes were thrilling to watch. Number two, Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan is my favorite director of all time, so naturally his movies are going to make my top ten. But his past four movies, Interstellar, The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, and The Dark Knight, have topped my list in their respective years. Dunkirk is somehow only at number two. In a March Madness of some crazy upsets, this might be the biggest one. This is the first movie I reviewed for The Bridge, and upon a few rewatches, Dunkirk not only holds up, it continues to get better. It won three Oscars in film editing, sound mixing, and sound editing against some very tough competition. It also has some of the most breathtaking shots of 2017. The acting, phenomenal. The interweaving of the three stories add to the film, especially on a second and third and fourth watch. It checks all the boxes. Rewatchability, entertainment, and quality. I don't disagree with any choice the film made. But for one independent film, the slipper still fits. Number one. Wind River. We know how talented Taylor Sheridan is as a writer. Just see Sicario and Hell or High Water. He does it again with Wind River, but this time he also takes a seat in the director's chair to make one of the best movies of the year. Jeremy Renner puts together the best performance of his career in a movie with phenomenal cinematography and stunning shots of a snow-covered area in Wyoming. Obviously, the writing is on point, but Sheridan really took it up a notch to create some highly tense and original scenes. I wouldn't call the movie entertaining or fun, but what supersedes that qualification of making my top ten list is that Wind River has a powerful message. It's something that is overlooked in our society that pertains to Indian reservations, and while it is not entertaining, the movie is satisfying, and somehow got completely ignored by the Academy. It was a Weinstein Company film, but after the allegations, Lionsgate acquired the distribution rights. Maybe that's what caused voters to stay away. Maybe it was the late summer release. Either way, Wind River is one of the most important films of the year on the same level with Get Out and Wonder Woman. A movie that needs to be seen. A damn good movie. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into some Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, 
and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.